Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 60. And once again this week, we are going to get lented with Dr. Martin Luther. Psalm 6 this week. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy anger, nor chasten me in thy wrath. To explain this psalm, several things must be noted. First, in all trials and affliction, man should first of all run to God. He should realize and accept the fact that everything is sent by God, whether it comes from the devil or from man. This is what the prophet does here. In this psalm, he mentions his trials. But first, he hurries to God and accepts these trials from him. For this is the way to learn patience and the fear of God. But he who looks to man and does not accept these things from God becomes impatient and a despiser of God. Again, that is from Dr. Martin Luther's commentary on Psalm 6, one of the so-called penitential psalms. Yes, an intense psalm. <laughs> it was a great way to start his uh, volume on the penitential psalms on his little his little pamphlet. Right. Because uh, it's so, uh, it digs deep into the, who we are and our condition. It does. And... For those, yeah, it's this is Luther's Works Volume 14 in the American edition if you want to buy it. And I think I've noted before, as much as I love the bondage of the will and the Galatians commentary from 1535, if I had to be on a desert island, this is actually the volume I would want with me. Well, yeah, because it would actually respond to your condition on a desert condition island. Condition on a desert <laughs> island, exactly. This is how... This is how it feels right now, Lord, because of the actual reality of the situation. Right, uh, right. So answer me, right? Right. And we were talking before we went on air about uh, a book on leadership. I've recently finished Hal Moore on leadership. And something that Hal talks about at the end of his book is not building people up, but building down in the sense of establishing deep roots for, in his case, soldiers who he's preparing to go into battle uh, around the era of Vietnam. And he uses the analogy of the oak tree, mm. that an oak tree it has a very broad root structure, but it's not a deep root structure. And thus in storms, you'll often see these oak trees blown over on their sides with their roots sticking up in the air, so to speak. And so for him, that's a good analogy for how a good leader prepares his soldiers for battle, which is, as I said to you too, when we uh, train in combat martial arts, whether it be Muay Thai or Jiu Jitsu, one of the things we talk about is that it's all fun and games in the gym to work on techniques that are complicated and have numerous steps to them. But in real world situations, when you get punched in the face, you always revert to your base, to the simple things, to your basic training, the mm -hmm. basics, chin down, hands up, check the kick, um, keep moving, choose the right angles, maintain your distance. Because no matter how fancy you get and no matter how well-trained you are and competent, when the rubber hits the road, when you are punched in the face, you will revert to what you know, what you've trained to do. Yep. And that's the basics. And that's really for me then what the penitential Psalms are and what Dr. Luther has to say about the penitential Psalms. This is the basics for what happens when you get punched in the face in your Christian faith. And in my experience, um, you know, I've been trying to restore the use of the Psalms in corporate worship, you know, yeah, right. but, but also in devotional life, praying a Psalm, uh, just one Psalm, but praying it every day through the week, you know, kind of mm -hmm. instruct the congregation to do that. And the reason is that, like you say, you fall back on, you know, in the case of, of faith, you fall back on the words that you've learned, right? Right. And so, I mean, if the words that you know are, well you know, like Benjamin Franklin, you know, God mm -hmm. doesn't give you anything that you can't handle or what, what is this expression? <laughs> there you, you go. Know? Oh, uh, God uh, rewards those who reward themselves or how's it go? I don't know. God helps those who help themselves. There you go. Uh, <laughs> you know, people fall back. I like the, I like your version better though. I'm going to go shopping right after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see how, I mean, you fall back on those expressions um, that you've said enough times right. that you've come to actually maybe even believe them. Another mm -hmm. one would be, Oh, I don't know. So and so has gone to a better place, you know, in, in right. case of death, which isn't really comforting, or it'll get better. Well, that's or not really biblical, or biblical. Yeah, um, think about it. Another one <laughs> that you hear all the time is like, "Well, it's it is what it is." 
Like, you yeah. know, that's not in the Bible, right? Right. <laughs> you know where that comes from? <laughs> it comes like, from AA, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, really? I'm like, yeah. yeah. So better, better would be to um, have this, the words of the Psalms come to mind, right? Um, because then you're grounded in, in God's revelation to you in Christ. Ask any pastor, what is the most read and well, what is the most requested and read Psalm at a funeral? 23. And they will say, Psalm 23. Yeah. When someone asks me to explain sin, Psalm 51. Mm-hmm. When someone asks, what's my favorite passage in the Bible? Psalm 118, verses 17 through 19. It's our family psalm. Mm. And on and on it goes. That for myself anyways, anecdotally speaking, when I was introduced to Dr. Luther in 1997 by Dr. or Pastor Stephen Krieger, my mentor, um, who brought me into the LCMS actually, and introduced me to Dr. Luther's works, when I fell in love with Luther from reading his introduction to Romans, the Romans commentary and, and reading other things in that uh, Dillenberger anthology of Luther's works. Yeah. And I said, I'll follow this guy anywhere. I'll, whatever he wants to teach me, I'll listen. <laughs> That's where he takes you because he's an Old Testament guy. He's a former monk. So he is well grounded in the Psalter. He, like you said, he prayed it every day. He prayed all the way through the Psalter. Every week. It? Right? Every week, yeah, every week, because you play, pray the hours. Mm-hmm. And so every week he prayed all the way through the Psalter. So for years. Would it take like a whole day just to do 119 probably, right? Probably, <laughs> probably. Well, they didn't have TV. So, <laughs> but nonetheless, when you then read Dr. Luther's pastoral letters, Letters of Spiritual Comfort mm-hmm. by Tappert, what comes up the most? He quotes the Psalms constantly. Yeah. In, his, in his sermons, he quotes the Psalms constantly. In his ruminations, in his meditations, and in his lectures, he's quoting the Psalms. That's, that is Luther's deep roots that he is constantly being drawn back to in the, in bearing the cross yeah. in daily life. Yeah. And so I tell my own people this, as you just noted, it took me a while for me to get folks to do the introit on Sundays mm-hmm. from the Psalter. Mm-hmm. But now after 10 years, they don't care about how long the Psalm is. We're going to, we're going to confess the whole Psalm responsibly. We're not just going to take piecemeal. Yeah. You don't have to do the abbreviated right. version. Because as we were talking about before we started recording, they care now about what's being said versus how long this is going to take to say it. I, you know, and I wonder about um, that lack of patience with God and his word, right? Yeah. Uh, it seems to be, it seems to be spe- something unique or special about Lent in particular, where we know, like, especially during Holy Week, things are going to take a while. And uh, right. I remember a, uh, 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 meditation on the Easter vigil. I can't remember the author. He's a Roman Catholic author talking about the vigil and how long it takes, mm-hmm. and uh, and just compelling you to to consider at least at least for tonight, just be patient with the Lord. Right? Listen, yes. listen to the whole story again. Right. Take your time, and and and, and it's okay. <laughs> we're we're not in a hurry here. And then he uses the the picture of Treebeard, you know, from. Uh, from uh, uh, yeah, Two Towers. Lord of the Rings. You know, like, let's not be hasty. <laughs> the Two Towers. Which is even funnier when you consider the personality traits of the hobbits, which one is... They're pretty patient. They're, yeah, they're pretty slow people. Yeah, they're, they're right. pretty relaxed. They're pretty laid back. Slow food. And, right. Yeah. So first he says, in all trials and affliction, man should first of all run to God, realizing and accepting the fact that everything is sent by God. Whether it comes from the devil or from man, well, that's a difficult thing to chew on right off the bat. Mm -hmm. But then second, he says, God chastens in two ways. God disciplines in two ways. At times he does so in grace as a kind of father, temporarily, that is in an earthly sense. At times he does so in wrath as a stern judge, that is in an eternal sense. Mm -hmm. By the way, wrath simply translated means furious anger. And in Hebrew, the image is actually God breathing fire out of his nose. <laughs> Ouch. That's the actual imagery there. Wrath, so, as they say in England. Wrath. <laughs> so first, these trials and afflictions are sent by God. Second, we ask, are you disciplining me in the way of grace, like a, a loving father, or are you disciplining me in the way of wrath, like a stern judge? Hmm. Now, Luther continues, when God sees as man, man is by nature weak and disheartened because he does not know whether God is taking him in hand out of anger or in grace. In fear of his anger, he begins to cry out, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy anger. Let it be in grace and temporally. Be a father, not a judge. Thus also St. Augustine says, O God, bear down here, strike here, beat here, but spare us in yonder life. 
Thus, he implores here not that he wants to go unpunished altogether, for this would not be a good sign, but that he be punished as a child by his father. However, that these words are spoken by a sinner or in the person of a sinner follows from the fact that he mentions punishment. For God's punishment is not sent for the sake of righteousness. Therefore, all saints and Christians must recognize themselves as sinners and fear God's wrath. For this psalm is general and excludes no one. Therefore, woe to all those who do not fear, do not feel their own sins, and walk about smugly in the face of the awful judgment of God, before whom no good work can avail. Hmm. Right? Yeah. I, that's an interesting distinction. That I don't know. Simil. Uh, yeah, that's right. We'll get to that. Uh, but a distinction that we don't often think about is that, um, you know, it's really the hidden God and the revealed God as well, right? Absolutely. That, good point. That the hidden God is this God of wrath who only, you know, who, who we can only know as capricious, I guess is the word, you know, just does whatever he feels like, doesn't seem to make any sense, kind of like, oh, I don't know, like a Greek god, you know, <laughs> where right. just really hard to nail down, doesn't seem to be all that terribly consistent. Right. Uh, sometimes things go really well, and sometimes things go horribly bad, and a lot of times it's right in the middle. It's arbitrary and capricious. Right, and that's what wrath looks like. Seems that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's just like, why that? Um but uh, but then to speak him as a father who disciplines in love uh, is hard. That's even hard for us to to kind of get our heads around too, because our yeah, right. our earthly experience of that, um, you know, not everybody has a father that always acts <laughs> in love. <laughs> Sometimes um, they kind of burst right. out in wrath as well. You know, right? This was I think I've talked about this on the podcast before briefly, but because of my dad's PTS from Vietnam service, he was not the model. Hmm. of a father. He couldn't be a father to me. He just couldn't. He was dead inside. He came back dead hmm. as so many did. And therefore he was incapable of love in any intimate or tender, empathetic way. He just couldn't do it. He didn't have it in him anymore. He still doesn't. But when I then was a missionary and was wrestling still with the question of whether Jesus was God or not, and mm -hmm. especially praying the Our Father, I just could not do it. When we would pray the Our Father in church, I would just grit my teeth and mouth the words, but I wouldn't speak the words. Because my thought at the time was, uh, well, if yeah. God is anything like my dad, then to hell with that. <laughs> I'll, I'll embrace Jesus, but as far as God the Father goes, you can keep it. And that's a challenge with uh, biblical analogies, I guess, or, or comparatives like that. Mm -hmm. um, I had a similar conversation about marriage, right? Where right, yeah. uh, someone was like, yeah, well, the wedding feast of the lamb and the king, you know, and we're his bride mm -hmm. and he's the, he's the bridegroom. And that's that should be beautiful to me, but it's not. Yeah, right. And you can guess why. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we need to we need to recognize that 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 it's oh, in technical terms, it's you know, it's comparison, but it's not uh, a equals b, but it's right. One is pales in comparison to the greater, which would be Christ and His Church. Right, and we don't want to also fall then into the trap of uh, erecting a platonic ideal and saying, well, God as Father is the ideal for all fathers to strive toward, or the example of fatherhood, for mm, example. Mm. There's a danger in that too, of idealizing fatherhood. What are you saying? He's a father in a way that we could never be? Is that yes. where you're going with that? I am saying that 100%. <laughs> Good luck. Try. Being the, being the creator of the universe. Um, I can't even build a birdhouse for my kids, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna take that burden on too. But I think the key here is what I didn't know at the time, because it hadn't been taught to me, was this. All saints and Christians must recognize themselves as sinners and fear God's wrath, because this is a general psalm that excludes no one, meaning you are a saint on account of your baptism into Christ. Mm -hmm. However, because you are in the flesh, you are a sinner, and therefore you should fear God's wrath. Romans 7 and 8, Galatians 6. So what ends up happening then when you lose the tension here that you are still a sinner, even though you are declared a saint, it is imputed righteousness, as we say, declared to you. So therefore, even though you can't see any evidence of righteousness in you, it doesn't matter because God has declared you righteous for Christ's sake. Yeah. But that that is then in relation to God, not in relation to your neighbors necessarily. Mm. And even in relation to your brothers and sisters in Christ who may not recognize you as a saint because you don't speak or act according to their criteria for what constitutes a saint. 
But when it comes to this point, then when God grips a hold of you mm. to discipline you, he does not discipline you in the way of grace at one time and in the, in the discipline of his anger at another time, but rather these happen at the same time. And, and wrath is, I mean, I guess this is an argument that people um, have made, theologians, mm. <laughs> throughout uh, the millennia, that, that the Christian doesn't experience God's wrath. That's what some people would say. Well, yes, if you, by Christian you mean the saint. <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to say the new man in Christ only experiences God's grace mm-hmm. as discipline. It's the old Adam that is experiencing his wrath because right. only the old Adam needs God's wrath. And as Dr. Luther will say in the Greater Galatians Commentary in 1535, the Christian, the new man in Christ, participates in the death of the old Adam in his vocation. Yeah. That invocation by sacrificing yourself as a father for his child, for example putting the needs of your child ahead of your own. Being a father to your sons and daughters is a crucifixion because you are <laughs> sacrificing your life for the life of your child. Well, and it's you'd just... rather be judge than father. Right. Oh, so much so. <laughs> so much Let me so tell so. you. <laughs> Especially well, when you want them to clean their room on Sunday morning uh, or Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon, yeah. The the other aspect here is that I mentioned that you know Christians have argued about this for millennia. I mean, it's really what they call the theodicy, theodicy question, right? Right. Uh, right. Is God the author of evil? I think is how that's usually defined. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, by author of evil, it means why do good things happen to bad people or no. bad things happen to good people? <laughs> I know that's the opposite question. Yeah, right. why do bad things happen to quote unquote good people? Which of course right. betrays the the um, the whole argument a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is that why who is good? Uh, no, right. not one, right? And so why does why do good things happen to bad people is actually a better question. Right. <laughs> well, what's interesting is theodicy is popularized during the Enlightenment, and mm-hmm. it's a rather recent invention as far as this goes. And what we mean by this is that historically, as with here, God, if you think of the courtroom drama, God sits in the judge's chair, God the Father sits in the judge's chair. Satan, which means accuser, is the prosecuting mm. attorney who's bring, bringing a case against you, the sinner, the criminal. And the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is the defense attorney. And all of the evidence that Satan brings against us holds up in court. It's verifiable. It's objectively true. We deserve to die. And then Jesus struts into the courtroom and says, hey, point of order. Uh, whatever judgment, whatever sentence you're about to pass down, dad, I'll take the punishment for the person in the defense chair. Now, what the Enlightenment did is they took God out of the judge's seat and put him in the defense uh, seat. yes, right. And then put us in the judge's seat and said, okay, now God, justify all of this evidence that Satan has presented against you, which holds up in court, by the way, justify yourself. Otherwise, we will pass sentence on you, which is to say, you are not worthy to be our God. And Mm. in an ironic twist, you deserve death, which gives birth eventually to the death of God movement, to which you and I would say, yeah, no, that already happened at Golgotha. Whereas, yeah, the psalmist would have us say, you know, God, you are just and justified in your deeds, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. God is God and you are not, would be the classic (laughs) statement. it's not... Obviously, it's not a very, um, what do we call it, high anthropology, not a high view of man. No, it's not. (laughs) It doesn't really build up one's self-esteem. But consider the author. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah, he he has It would be uh, different. David often has a high view, an overly optimistic uh, view of himself, and it has, I don't think, ever worked out well for him, at least in the evidence that we have been given. Historic evidence, yes. Yes. Yeah. There's another aspect of this. I've seen it play out in... um, in television, especially in all these cop shows that, that my wife likes to watch, and uh, how often people try to take the place of another, all right? Yes. So, yes. you know, their kid commits a crime and they try to cover yeah, it up. And the and take, well, actually take the blame for it and say, yeah, I right. did it. And the legal system will not allow you to get away with that. Correct. You can't, I, I just thought about it. I mean, you're saying, you know, Jesus struts in and says, I'm going to take his place and I'll bear the brunt of the, you know, I'll right. do the time for him. And legally they say no absolutely not mm-hmm. this person deserves you know punishment this person deserves right. imprisonment or death and they have to suffer it and there's no there's no ability for that sort of gracious giving uh in our legal system as well there probably shouldn't be mm-hmm. um, but that that's what's so different about how god relates to us in christ rather than just mm-hmm. according to his his law or his legal scheme um yeah. which according to his justice mm-hmm. there's no getting off the hook 
Right. Well, and to push the analogy biblically then, in the Abrahamic promise, in the Abrahamic covenant, God is the only one who promises to die should that blood oath be broken by either side. Mm-hmm. So in that courtroom drama, to to accurately depict it in relation to the scripture, when we are called to the stand, Jesus comes in instead and says, well, actually, I was there. And here's what we actually, here's the contract that we drew up. which Not is, just a substitute for punishment, but a substitute as in takes all of the actions upon himself too. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Becomes sinner, right? Right. Not just bears the brunt of sin or the, the shame or guilt that sin deserves, but actually. But becomes, yeah, God made him to become sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Which is very different than taking someone's right. place and kind of a, oh, I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm just going to, right. you know, put myself in your place. Right, which is, again, we were talking about the classical term substitutionary atonement, mm. essentially is what mm-hmm. we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But for those of you who struggle with this, well, there to me anyways, there's nothing wrong with the with that theory or with the fact that the Bible does actually teach atonement, substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. Jesus substitutes mm-hmm. it. Yeah, the lamb dies exactly. in the place of the people. Right. Right. It's kind of hard to get around. Behold the Lamb of God who sacrifices himself for the <laughs> sin of the world. Yeah. The point being, though, as we just drew out, is that in that substitution, that was already preordained in the Abrahamic covenant. Right. God was going to die regardless of what happens. And here's because the, that's why in Ephesians, Paul says, here's the Lamb of God who was crucified from the foundation of the world. And the only one who can say this substitute is uh, the full and complete substitute for sin. The yes. only one who can do that is the judge, actually. Right, right. You know, whereas we can't say, oh, I'm going to do this, and this should appease you, oh, judge. <laughs> right. Or I'm going to give this, you know, I'm going to give my life for my friend, and that's going right. to take their place. Right. Only the judge actually can can say, here's right. a reasonable substitute for my, right. for my So the, the new man in Christ is always covered in the blood of Christ, always. Mm-hmm. And the old Adam is always trying to wash it off and then screaming bloody murder when God's wrath falls upon him, asking, what have I done to deserve this? Well, you got out from under the blood of Christ. I mean, you're running away from the cross. What did you expect was going to happen? So back to the book, verse 3, 3b technically, Mm -hmm. but thou, O Lord, how long? Dr. Luther comments, time seems long to all who are afflicted. And on the other hand, it seems short to those who are happy. I must be really happy then. (laughs) But it seems especially and immeasurably long to those who have that inner hurt of the soul, the feeling of being forsaken and rejected by God. It is sometimes said that one hour in purgatory is worse than a thousand years of temporary or temporal bodily pain. Thus, there is no greater pain than the gnawing pangs of conscience which occur when God withholds truth, righteousness, wisdom, etc. Nothing remains but sin, darkness, pain, and woe. This is a sample or foretaste of the pains of hell and everlasting damnation. Therefore, it pierces the very bones, strength, blood, marrow, and whatever there is in man. Hmm. So this lament, right? Yeah, uh, that's heavy. But thou, O oh Lord, how long? Um, is, I don't know, something I've prayed. and right. um, Just so often. Yeah, and I don't know if it's a daily prayer. I mean, because like Luther points out, mm-hmm. uh, it's especially mm, obvious when the pangs of conscience come upon you, right? When, mm-hmm. when you recognize uh, temporal bodily pain, when God right. withholds. Um, his too. word, et cetera. I was going to say, when, when it happens to me, and this is again, just anecdotal, but when it, when it happens to me personally, and I'm sure this is more of my personality than anything else, I just put my head down and go. Like when I'm, when I'm punched in the face, I just put my chin down and drive forward. Like that's my attitude. But like embrace it almost? Oh, hundred percent. Embrace the grind. Yeah. Like just embrace the suck. Just get on it, get after it and move forward. <laughs> And in my circle of, of friends and peers, that's essentially, that's how your character is measured. Literally like, oh, you just got kicked. You just got punched. You just got strangled. What are you going to do next? Are you going to quit? Are you going to keep going? What are you going to do? 
It's not exactly masochistic, right? I mean, it's, you're not talking about pain for the for the sake of pain, but no, 100% not. No, it's the 40% rule that David Goggins talks about, former Navy SEAL, Ranger, everything, mm-hmm. that your mind will quit at about 40% your body's capacity, and that what you're doing then by pushing yourself past what your brain says you're capable of is you're not only building mental discipline, but you're building self-confidence, you're building physical discipline and so forth and so on. And the further you go, the more you can do. So when I'm smacked around and I'm in that place of, you know, the gnawing pangs of conscience, I just put my head down and grind. I just get after it twice as hard. Oh, okay. I normally run 5k. I'm going to run a 10k. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. You, you know, my brain is saying, don't get out of bed this morning. I'm getting up at four instead of 4.30. Right. I'm going to go to bed at, you know, whatever. Versus when it happens to other people, mm-hmm. when I hear a confession or I'm listening to someone on a podcast discuss something that they went through that was horrific or terrible or catastrophic, that's like, to your point, that's when I will, will say out loud, even if there's nobody around, Lord, you know, have mercy, Lord, how long? Because when it's happening to other people, that's when I feel helpless. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, okay. that's the root of it for me is... When you come and confess to me, I know that I'm helpless to help you. I can absolve you. And if you ask for counsel, I can counsel you. But at the end of the day, you're going to go home and face that. And I'm going to go home and not face that. There's nothing I can do about that. So, for example, I mean, you can declare the forgiveness of sins uh, right. in, in Christ's name, right? And their mm-hmm. sins are forgiven before God. Right. What you can't take away from them is the way that sin is manifest in their flesh. I mean, you... Right. You can you 100%. can maybe make suggestions on how you might discipline right. the old Adam. <laughs> um, right. Well, but but it's ultimately, I mean, the only one who can be responsible for that in a direct way is is them, right? Right, hundred percent. Yeah, and those whom they hold accountable, right? Right. Themselves. Well, that's what makes me cry out. How long? Whether a young woman, young girl comes to me and confesses the sin of getting pregnant at fifteen, sixteen years old, there's nine months left. There's nine months of this. And then there's the baby after that. The baby's not going anywhere. So this is a lifelong, this is lifelong. And I, as your pastor, am there, but I'm not there. I'm only there in the the capacity to which you invite me into that versus a situation where 84-year-old widower comes to me and confesses all of these indiscretions that he now lives with the guilt that he never confessed the truth to his wife. Mm. And I got to live with that now. (laughs) whatever it may be, my children suffering. When my children get hurt or something happens at school and I have no control over that, and my initial reaction is, well, I'll just go to the school and just bang heads. <laughs> and it's like, no, you can't do that. That's not how a rational adult behaves. Your mm. children have to go through these experiences the same way that you and I did. And at the end of the day, as much as you prepare them and as much as you do for them to get them, pre- well, to protect them, Mm, yeah at the end they still got to go out the door at at, you know at some point and you don't get to control that that narrative you don't get to protect them and put a wall around them and what's going to happen to them is going to happen to them i haven't thought about yeah i haven't thought about affliction that way as being um a a sense of helplessness right right i mean and it's not always internal but but being external too those who you love and being being powerless to help them even as a pastor to a member that that's something Oh, absolutely. When my uh, oldest was born and he had all the birth defects mm-hmm. and the hole in the brain, they told us he was going to die. From the moment we were told that at the end of the first trimester until he was seven after his last brain surgery, I actually can't count the number of times I prayed that God would kill me in his place. Yeah. Like begged God to take my life instead of his. I'm like, you can do whatever you want to me. Spare, spare his life, take my life in exchange. Right. It, if you want to see how quickly we can go pagan, just do that. Take a child from their parent and see how quickly you revert to just full-on sacrificial paganism, life for a life kind of thinking. Yeah. And just don't even pray that Jesus would do anything. You're just like, kill me. I don't care. That's, do what you want to me. That's Spare his life. Something, but it's true. It's true. Yeah. And so, yeah, when God withholds the truth, righteousness, wisdom, and there's nothing that's left over but sin and darkness and pain and woe, this is this this is a foretaste of hell (laughs) yeah so if you've ever wondered not the cartoons not dante's inferno not (laughs) not any of the mythic greco-roman uh depictions of hell that we've smuggled into christianity especially in the middle ages if you just want to know what is hell this is it right here pain it's sin darkness pain and woe it's the grinding gnawing horror of that helplessness before God and before your neighbor. 
Mm. Now live with that empty feeling, that that feeling in the pit of your stomach or in the lump in your throat. Imagine living with that forever. And I know we've talked about um, maybe your opposition. I don't. I probably agree in some degree. Uh, opposition to the idea of being on a pil- being a pilgrim or being in between times. A journey. A journey. Um, because well, journey and pilgrimage imply progress or movement, um, mm-hmm. upward movement, maybe, which is where. where Thus, we- the title of the book. <laughs> a pilgrim's progress. Okay. Uh, but but there is a sense, I like this word foretaste, because we get that with the sacrament yes. as well, and that yeah. we we experience ro, woe, wrath, damnation in a, in a way, although we're not damned, right? right? We're not right, condemned. No. We still live, as evidence right. of that. Right, and, and so the same, we have the declaration of grace. Uh, we actually have forgiveness of sins proclaimed to us. It's true. We eat at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Right and but yet not in its fullness right not not in the way that it will be in the resurrection we're still yeah this is still the church militant so we are in between and and thankfully we don't experience full damnation yet um right ever well we are in the last days yeah that's another way of saying it's right depicted in the new testament this is the last these are the end times gray and latter days yeah so essentially what you just said is that the christian life is essentially a tapas bar until the resurrection, <laughs> did I say that? <laughs> just hors d'oeuvres and and little sips of wine. Little, it's yeah. a tapas bar. It is. It is the good thing. Yes, but the way that we experience it is not right. in its fullness. Right. I was going to say we will we will link to the, the Jocko Willing video on good to explain this, because as a Christian, there is an application here that in the midst of suffering and affliction, we can still say good, mm. because God is good. Mm-hmm. And as Dr. Luther points out in verse one, all of our afflictions and crosses come from God, whether from Satan or from the world, they're still from God because he disciplines us in the way of grace and in the way of wrath. He puts to death and the old Adam daily. He puts to death the old Adam. And when we recognize in Christ that our old Adam is actually being put to death and not God coming to kill us mm. because he hates us, mm. we can say, good. <laughs> but when we turn away from the cross, yeah. And God does this, we cannot say good. We cannot. Only if you're a nihilist or a fatalist. Yeah. It, or, or just uh, insane. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Back to the book, verse five. For in death, there is no remembrance of thee. And Dr. Luther writes, that is, the dead do not praise thee, do not extol thy mercy. Only the living do this. As we read in Psalm 115, Verses 17 and 18, quote, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any that go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Therefore, Dr. Luther says here, the psalmist speaks not only of temporal death, but also of spiritual death when the soul is dead. For sin is the death of the soul and pain is its hell. Both are felt by one who lies in this distress, namely in sin and in punishment for sin. Therefore, he says, do not let me remain in death and hell, but according to thy mercy, graciously raise me up, deliver me from hell and console me. Thus, this verse makes us understand that this tribulation is a door and entrance into eternal sin and punishment Hmm. that is into death and hell as king hezekiah says quote i have said in great terror i must enter the gates of hell in the midst of my days that is when i thought i was in the best years of my life that is from uh, the prophet isaiah chapter 38 verse 10. Hmm. right this is not this is not something that you want to read while you're on vacation on a beach somewhere. <laughs> uh, the, oh, talking about temporal death and uh, spiritual death, uh, yeah. that distinction is one that's often lost on people too, I mm-hmm, think, mm-hmm. Uh, in that we talk about, I mean, the wages of sin is death, right? right. Little d death or big d death, yeah. But the, the other text that comes to mind um, that is a little, there's been some argument about, is uh, Paul referring to those who eat and drink the sacrament unworthily, right, in 1 Corinthians. And right. that, that that's why some of you have gotten sick and have died. 
Yes. Right? And people was like, wait a minute. You, if right, you don't believe right. the sacrament is Christ's body and blood, that's going to kill you? <laughs> uh, it, mm, maybe. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't happen, uh, but certainly spiritually, right? Right. Or like, right. this is faith killing. When you say to God, I know what you say this is, but nah, this is right. this is just food and drink, and this is for us to get drunk on and, and right. to engorge ourselves on. And it's not for... Um, for the forgiveness of sins, right. you know, by denying God's word, I mean, this is how we, this is how you make, you know, ruin your faith, mm-hmm. the faith that God gives in His word. I think you're right because even when I talk with folks who are well versed in Luther's works, and I quote or include in the sermon or in an article that I may write, Jesus is the big S sin to our little S sin. Mm. He is the big D death to the little death. He is the big S Satan to our Satan. And people will say, well, "Where is that from?" I'll say, well, it's actually from the joyous exchange. It's from two kinds of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And he becomes Peter the denier. He becomes Paul the blasphemer, the persecutor. You I mean he becomes that for us. That's what it means That's to be. That's early Luther, not at his best. Right, of course. <clears throat> and so that is essentially what we're diving into here, which is in Christ, yeah, we have a person, a God who becomes our sin and takes on our death and goes into our hell, as Dr. Luther points out. Thy mercy graciously raise me up, deliver me from hell and console me. Psalm 68, by the way. Mm-hmm. This is three days, is what he's describing. This is Jesus' three days in the tomb. Right. So as we noted yesterday, whether you're talking about faith or grace or good works or wisdom or even sin, you're talking mm. about Jesus. And when you're not talking about Jesus, that's when you judge God. That's when you begin to question. You you fear God for all the wrong reasons. And you turn your back on Jesus. And then, yeah, you truly are going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why has God done this, doing this to me? These kinds of things. Or you, you start inventing these trite platitudes because you've got to figure a way out from underneath this weight that's now on top of you. That's right. So if you read, like, say, the Old Testament histories as your story, your personal story, yeah. <laughs> you're you're gonna be like, oh, uh, it seems like, right. yeah, no, things don't go very well for me. Uh, whereas if you read that as the story of God redeeming His people in Jesus Christ, namely, yes, yes. Uh, you know, so even even going down, you know, into Egypt, well, out of Egypt, I've called my son, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the evangelist picks up on that. Or or, or Babylon, yeah. you know, the exile in Babylon and the lack, this again is another picture, maybe a Passion Week or, or of Lent, the season right. of Lent. You see where the people, they, they God withholds from them, it seems, externally, uh, mm-hmm. his gracious providence, in the, but actually he's preserving them through it all. Um, you know, th- he's still with them. He still sends his messengers right. to them. Uh, the prophets, there's <laughs> prophets of a sort. Yeah, You bring up such a great point. This is so imperative and vital is they only lament these things when they are rebelling. They're in full rebellion against God. Yes. And therefore, they lament his, act, his actions, his work. They hang up their harps in Babylon and yes. we're not even going to pray anymore. And you're like, right. Um, why? <laughs> right. I mean, isn't God present? I mean, they know the Psalms, right? Uh, How many it, times has God sent a preacher to say, you've done this to yourself, you know? Right. But it doesn't matter, actually. If you're in Babylon, I'm there. Right. Even exactly. if you're in Sheol, uh, this right. place of silence, I'm there. Right. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. When you turn away from God's promise, that's why I say, you end up, again, you end up fearing God for all the wrong reasons. You end up judging God and you turn your back on his promise. And thus you hang up your harp and go, yeah, I got, there's nothing worth singing about. Why bother to pray? Or you hang out in the bushes. <laughs> yeah, right. Go hide. Go hide in the bushes. That's right. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> right. Oh, nice. you little children. Right, right. You've tried right, to play I, a game with I, me. I thought I saw a Sasquatch. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Back to the book, verse eight. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Dr. Luther writes that this does not mean all kinds of unjust persons, hmm. but those of outstanding virtue and wisdom is clear from Matthew chapter seven verse 22, where the Lord Jesus quotes this half of the verse against those who on the last day will say, yes, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works? These wise and holy ones are called workers of evil by Christ because they do not perform the good in the right way. And now he attacks the proud holy ones who have never felt the wrath of God, 
or come to a knowledge of their sins. Therefore they do not believe, trust, call upon, know, or teach the goodness of God. But they mislead themselves and others through works and the bold presumption of merit before God. He wishes that these too would have to experience the wrath of God so that they would finally recover from their bold presumption and regain their senses. That's a brilliant move. A very right? Luther or Lutheran move mm -hmm. is to, well, scripture interprets scripture, right? Yeah. And say, right. how do we understand this expression? Are we talking about just, you know, blatant, obvious external works of evil, you know, like murder mm -hmm. and, and theft and that kind of thing? Or, uh, as Luther does, say, well, how does Jesus understand this? Uh, how does he how does he confess what is a worker of evil it's kind of tongue-in-cheek right we'd say mm -hmm. as an expression yeah evil quote unquote these are the people who would come to you and say well if you just try harder if you go to church more often if you live a more upstanding virtuous life then god's going to withdraw withhold or withdraw i should say his wrath from you right right and and that is evil <laughs> mm -hmm. is not is not to trust in the mercy of god but rather to um return um what to your own works to your own merit like luther says and this is a radical move by dr luther for those of you who are listening who aren't aware of this is that dr luther does not set up a we versus them dichotomy as had traditionally been done when you comment on these types of psalms mm. there's us in the church and then there's them outside the church and you know the heretics whereas dr luther doesn't say it's not we versus them it's rather we are they but that's, that, in, that's in the Psalms themselves. Yes. It'll, David will say, oh, I know about my enemies. Oh, but me too. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it is so easy, easy to say, depart from me all you workers of evil and put yourself on the other side of the street and say, well, there's the good guys. That's me. I'm wearing the white hat. And then there's the bad guys and the black hats. And I'm definitely not one of them. Hmm. The problem, as Dr. Luther points out though, is one, and you point this out, that's not actually what scripture teaches. And two... <laughs> This kind of overconfidence is the pride that goeth before the fall. Mm. It doesn't actually answer his weeping, his grief. Right. Um, it doesn't, the, the answer is not, oh, to double down on trying to be better. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Because that's actually going to drive you more into sin, isn't it? Uh, law increases. Uh, yeah, right. They do not perform the good in the right way. Mm. So it's, it's who, not in who, faith, right? Who is God actually attacking? The holy ones. Huh. The proud, holy ones who have never felt the wrath of God or come to the knowledge of their sins. And we talked about this, I think, in the first uh, Psalm 51 that we, we discussed, which is, he, he draws this out too, of those who feel their sin are the truly repentant and the truly righteous, whereas those who feel the sins of others are the unrepentant and the unrighteous. That is, they don't recognize their own sin, but rather they go, well, I'm good, but I notice that you have some sin that needs to be taken care of. Yeah. And as he says, they, the reason they can do this or they see only the sins of others is because they put their sins on their back and they have a log in their eyes. So the Pharisee and the tax collector or the publican, sometimes called, mm -hmm. uh, what's interesting is both are in the church, but they're coming from yes. very different backgrounds right. and, and thus their confession um, is very different. Uh, but there is that danger of saying, well, that, that the, uh, the publican, the one who is pointing to other people's sin, um, mm. you know, he doesn't deserve to be there either. And you're like, no, actually he needs to be there. Um, but the way that God is going to rebuke him or correct him through his word is going to be very different, right? Right, the Pharisee. Yeah, the Pharisee, he's coming, he's a worker of evil. And so God's yeah. going, you know, going to have to tear him down. <laughs> right. He's, God's going to, how, how did Johnny Cash say it? God's going to tear you, know, you God's down. God's going to, yeah, God's going to, God's going to cut you down. Cut you down, that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's what he needs actually. And that, that actually would be fatherly discipline, uh, although right. it doesn't look like that and it doesn't feel like that. Is that why uh, Lutherans always sit at the back of the church and won't sit in the front? Because they've, they've embraced the parable of the tax collector and Pharisee wholeheartedly? Yeah, f friend, move up higher. I tried right. that and it doesn't work. No, right? it doesn't no, no, work. No, we sit, no, we want to sit back here, Pastor. <laughs> I'm like, That's no, right. look, we got seats of honor right in the front. Come on. <laughs> You can hear now, me better, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, this is now, personally, this is my favorite part of this commentary. And back to verse eight. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Dr. Luther writes, that is, God is so disposed that he gladly hears those who cry and lament. But 
not those who feel smug and independent. Therefore, the good life does not consist in outward marks and appearances, but in a lamenting and sorrowful spirit, as we read in the fourth of these Psalms, Psalm 51, verse 17. Mm-hmm. Quote, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And again, Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Therefore, Dr. Luther writes, weeping is preferred to working, and suffering exceeds all doing. Hmm. How much of this is private? Uh, something I've struggled with, mm-hmm. you know, crying and lamenting. I mean, we're, we're kind of, hmm, I guess we're taught to be very independent people, right? Uh, and that well, we used to be. Was, we now live in a nation of victims, so I don't know how true that is. Well, anymore. yeah. So, so I'm trying to play this out, maybe in the life of a congregation or in a family, right? I mean, how much vulnerability can you expose to others as saying, you know, I'm, right, I'm really, I'm really hurting here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm, and, and they're like, no, 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 it's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, no, sure. that's not what I need to hear right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I need you to acknowledge, acknowledge it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also need to hear forgiveness in Christ's name, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to look away. It means we're going right. to we're going to keep working at this because I'm still got the flesh, right? Well, I and, think this is to your point the importance of a pastor that will listen to you confess and the one that you can count on to dispense that forgiveness to you. And maybe maybe you can't actually. Well, it depends on what it is, right? You can't always reveal that in a corporate way, you know. Mm-hmm. I, but. But on the other hand, I mean, there's a way, I don't know, maybe it's liturgical, that we don't actually pray for one another. We kind of pray in just neutral or generic terms. Right. And, uh, and we're uncomfortable even with someone saying, you know, pray for whatever their name is. They're struggling mm-hmm. uh, with cancer of, you know, some body part that we don't want to name in public. Right. Right. And uh, uh, because that's so vulnerable and so, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to invite so much conversation that people... You know, they don't Gossip. want to have, well, that's true, in a, in a negative sense, or in a positive sense, it's like, I'm going to have to talk about it. I'm going to actually have to deal with it. I mean, and I'm yes, probably going to end up crying and lamenting. Right. Um, but that's but that's where God wants you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah, according to the psalm, and we actually just talked about this yesterday morning in Bible study around the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. I noted that the psalms and the Lord's Prayer are corporate in nature. They mm-hmm. As Luther says, they are general and yet very specific at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that when we write our own prayers, they tend to lean heavily toward praying for myself under the cover of a pious expression of need. Well, I just, or I need to ask for this, or I want that, or mm-hmm. Lord, if it, you know, or we'll cover it with a kind of pious glaze of, well, it's really for the kids. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, granted, I get to enjoy the new Mercedes too, but the kids really need. X, Y, and Z, Mm. versus the psalmist in the Lord's Prayer, which drives to this point, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, weeping, preferred to working, suffering exceeds all doing. How many of us pray ever, Lord, if it be your will, cause me to weep and suffer more that the old Adam might be put to death? Hmm. Yeah. Just the thought of it is terrifying. Well, and maybe it's because of the language we use. I mean, we'll say, oh, well, we have no problem saying, you know, humble me. Until maybe we actually stop does. To think and about go, what well, that actually I'm looks sorry. like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't specific enough. What I meant was <laughs> not that kind of humbling, <laughs> right? If you could send someone who's very kind and very gentle, <laughs> right? And so, uh, yeah, I think the problem with maybe back to my my kind of sticking point here is mm-hmm. uh, the the problem with like trying to weep or suffer out out in the open mm-hmm. is uh, it's it's hard to be genuine, right? I mean, it may be a performance mm-hmm. act. Um, you're trying to gain some sympathy from others, right? Um, or you're trying to please God with your weeping, <laughs> rather than simply right. weeping out of um, actual consequence of what's happened. I mean, maybe a maybe a time where this doesn't, where we well, see this play I, out well is like national tragedy or a local, yeah. you know, incident where you just can't, the, the, all the pie, piety just kind of falls apart, <laughs> right? And it becomes it, it does. Yeah. Well, I was going to say interpersonally, I think. There has to be a base of trust already there. If there's mm. no trust, then the confession can't be full, authentic, and real. 
because mm-hmm. if you don't know whether this person is trustworthy, if you don't know how they're going to receive your confession, then how can you be completely honest and open? It's and you true. and I both know this as pastors. There are people that, as far as we know, we've never done anything to betray their trust or demonstrate to them that we're untrustworthy as far as holding their confession and maintaining the seal of the of right. the confession. Right. And yet the weight of the particular sin that they carry around with them is so great that they, in some instances, they act as if they they make the confession, they'll just simply shatter. They'll just disintegrate. Mm. Because they believe, as I, one woman, when I visited her in jail, we first met, she, the first thing she said is, I want to I wanna tell you, I want to come completely clean. I want to make a full confession, but I know that God could never forgive what I've done. Yeah. They've built up their entire identity around that sin, right? Yes, and it, absolutely. It, you know, and the ancients called this like a besetting sin that mm-hmm. is a particular kind. That, but, but I think even, hmm, and if it's significant enough and we're not deceiving it, I mean, it just kind of sits in your brain. It sits on your conscience, as Luther said oh, earlier. Yeah. It's cancer. It's there all the time. It's all you think about, or it's always mm-hmm. in the back of your mind. It's it's burdening your, your psyche, if you like. Yeah. I mean, there's so much mental energy that's being spent mm-hmm. on it, even if you're not... Even if it's not on the front burner, it's the thing you're immediately aware of. Oh, it's it's malignant. It just and, grows and, and, you'll, and grows. And you'll feel it physically too. I mean, the, the oh, mental absolutely. stress then comes out in bodily stress and mm-hmm. uh, and it just fatigues you and to the right. point where um, when it's finally taken from you, um, maybe you do feel a little hollow or empty. Um, right. But, but that's because you, you've been building your whole existence around this sin. Rather than, exactly. rather than, you know, around your uh, trust in God, you know, for forgiveness. Well, and actually we talked about this, that uh, benign evil is much more dangerous and destructive than malignant evil because benign evil just pecks at you and takes a piece of you each day. And this is the point, right? Is that you hold that in. And David talks about this, obviously, right? When I did not confess my sins, your hand was heavy upon me and my bones <laughs> melted within me. That it picks at you day after day and it wears you down day after day after day. And like you said, all of a sudden, a year later, five years later, a lifetime later, you wake up and realize my identity is not baptized child of God. Mm -hmm. I sweep that away from me like opening an umbrella in the rain. I don't want to have anything to do with that title. Why? Because I am a sinner. I am the chief of all sinners. I am a damnable sinner. Why? Because of this thing that happened when I was 16 or 28 or 47, whenever it was. That becomes your identity all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden, I'm sorry. It becomes your identity over time. And what you don't recognize because it's happening to you piece by piece, slowly, inch by inch, is it has completely taken over your baptismal identity. Yeah. And therefore, slowly but surely, your entire life and the life of everyone around you is just a burden. Well, and I know you spoke uh, kind of negatively of Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> the, the slew of despond. Yeah, the, uh, the fictional bog, you know. Yeah. How does he say it? Uh, the miry uh, slough is that way how you pronounce it it's slough yeah oh it's slough look at that that's how you pronounce slough it's also how you pronounce slough which makes it even worse uh the slough is such a the slough of despond (laughs) is is such a place as cannot be mended it is the Mm. descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run and therefore it is called the slough of despond for still as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition there ariseth Mm -hmm. in his soul many fears doubts and discouraging apprehensions which all of them get together settle in this place and this is the reason um, of the badness of this ground, you know, where you just kind of, you just kind of, it's like uh, sinking sand in the hymn, right? Well, I was going to say in the book though, what it, to my point actually, in the book, when he get, enters into that slough, he fights it at first and he pushes ahead even harder mm, and tries yeah. to speed through it. But the longer he's in it, the slower he gets and the more despondent <laughs> he becomes. Yes. And I think, doesn't someone have to come along and save him? Well, that would help. I think in the book, somebody has to come along and actually help save him by pulling him out of that. I did read the books. I have a prejudice towards stuff that I read when I was an evangelical. And I know that's my personal thing, and I apologize to everyone listening. But it's like a divorce. Like, I had this young, hot trophy wife for a couple years, and then one day I woke up and realized she was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And, And we got a divorce, and it wasn't pretty. And then I married someone who was kind and gentle and only occasionally tried to stab me in the back. Lutheranism is what I'm talking about. <laughs> in case you can catch it, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, wow. <laughs> I joke, people, I joke. Mm. Yeah, it's, but it's like that thick, what do you call it, the thick mud, and it just, it just kind of tears yeah, you down. Yeah, absolutely. It just, you, just get, you just get caught in it. Oh, absolutely. When I lived in Louisiana, 
and uh, I laid waterline. That was my job. And most of Louisiana is red clay. Mm. And so when you dig down into that, especially six feet down, when you're laying that waterline and you get down in that red clay, you, you, you go down at a, like, let's say you're 145. When you go down, you're 180 when you come out because all that red clay is just gripping you. And it just you sucks can't tie it. your shoes tight enough. <laughs> no, you can't, and and it doesn't wash out, and it gets into every crook and crevice, and it's just nasty. Mm. Mm. But that's what it's like. It it you get down in it, and then all of a sudden you find that you can't get out. Right, but the point being is that's again where God wants you. Yeah, it is because you have no one left to cry out to. There's no one who can rescue you except God. That's sure. kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He's not punishing out. Israel for the rebellion, but rather in the rebellion against God, Israel rushes into their punishment. They rush into the very thing God's like, well, if you run over there and worship with them, you, you can pretend to be them and you can pretend that their God is your God, but they know you're not them. You don't have any rights. You don't have any legal privileges in that society. You're nothing to them. You're, they're playing with you. And if mm. you go over there and you join them, they will make you their slaves. And ta-da. Yeah. The deceit of idolatry, that's part of it, is like, right. oh, I can just, just a taste, you know? Right, exactly. Just a little bit. It'll be okay. Just, just, just one temple prostitute, just one <laughs> drunken orgy. I just want to see what it's that, like. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> and yet, what, what happens then when they fall, when there's, they're brought into that slavery, they cry out and lament, God, why would you let this happen to us? How could this have happened? And he, huh. and he receives that blame, which is even more... Yes. Right, uh, it, remarkable, extreme yeah. ownership. He just <laughs> goes, he just goes and goes. Yeah, I'll own that too. I'm your, you're my people. All right. I mean, really, if you, since we're dabbling in Pilgrim's Progress and John Bunyan and that pool, that really is the definition of amazing grace. Really, is that God enters into that and goes, yeah, I'll take ownership of this too. Mm-hmm. That's what's amazing about God's grace is that when He says, "Well, I warned you, and you did it anyways, and I told you what would happen when you did it." And mm. and it happened, mm. and you cr- and you forgot me, and you went off and worshipped false gods, and you did it, and exactly what I said would happen happened, and yet here I am with you. I'm still your God. You're still my people, and I'm still going to keep my promise to you. Mm. And I never That's cease amazing. to be. Um, yes, cease to be your God. Right. Even when you cease to trust or believe in me. Right. In fact, um, even in Beowulf which I'm just finishing up reading my second read through with uh, the audio version by the translator, Seamus Heaney, who's mm-hmm. Irish. So how can you not go wrong oh, by so listening beautiful. to an Irishman yeah. read poetry? <laughs> but even in, in Beowulf, which was at some point transcribed by a Christian monk, because there's numerous references to God Almighty and, and sin and so forth. Even in Beowulf, they bring this up, that when Grendel comes, they're all Christians and they everything is ascribed to the Lord Almighty. But then as Grendel starts to pick away and, and devour the people, literally eat them, it says that the people then went back to their idols <laughs> because they were hopeless. And they cried out to their old gods to save them from Grendel. And God sent them Beowulf, the hero. Yeah. Well, in a way, it's just kind of hedging your bet, right? 100%. <laughs> it's like, 100%. well, uh, there was the other ones too. So let, let's call out to them just in case. Right. You know, and that's that's the golden calf incident, right? Which right. Aaron is Aaron points out. I don't know if the people believed it, but Aaron at least thought, <laughs> you know, well, uh, it, you know, it's God's footstool. It's kind of a placeholder right. for God, and yeah, it's a little idolatry. But you know, right. we it's just a little idolatry. You. It's not a lot. I mean, just, it is God's footstool after all. We just added a little <laughs> bit, uh, you know, a little right. extra uh, trusts here in this other place. <laughs> right, this, this golden calf. Well, right. So back to the book, verse ten. Then to finish this up. All my enemies shall be ashamed and sorely troubled. That is, Dr. Luther writes, they stand there in their sense of well-being as a threat and a menace. And they glory in themselves as if all were well with them. Oh God, they do not know how devoid of all blessing they are. It would be good for them if they came to their senses and realized how very shameful and poor they are in the sight of God. For the proud in spirit and the worldly wise cannot but be satisfied with themselves, feel secure, esteem themselves highly, never feel foolish, always say the right thing, do the right thing, have holy intentions, stand out among others, and acknowledge few as their equals. 
this is the greatest blindness on earth. For to the extent that they think, esteem, and consider themselves great in these things, to that extent they are despised and dishonored before God. It is the psalmist wish that they realize this, for they would be different if they came to their senses and were terrified at themselves. What a great way to end a psalm. I mean, we're not right? done yet, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment is how it wraps up. But what he's saying is, you know, um, you are, uh, your words are true. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, the, what you say, uh, it is true. It's not necessarily the most gospel end to the little mm. psalm. That, mm. That's kind of what I'm getting at. But, right. but on the other hand, you're saying everything you say is true. And it, it, will, it will play out, you know, for my enemies yeah. around me. Well, as we started off with, for the new man in Christ, this is a great way to end. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, to the new man in Christ, the attack isn't against him. The attack is against Christ in him. But to the old Adam, it's terrible. It's horrible because the attack is, this is God in his, all of his fury, all of his anger toward your sin. And there is nowhere you can hide. There is nowhere you can run to where he will not be there waiting for you when you get there. Mm. And mm. that is a life not worth living for the old Adam. That's Jonah saying, throw me overboard and let me die. That's the only way this is going to end. To the new man in Christ, you're like James, John, and Peter after they've been tortured by the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. Hmm. They go home singing hymns because, they, why? They were grateful that they had been chosen to suffer for Christ's sake. Yeah, and that even, uh, this is probably a hard thing to try to get our heads around, but when, when our flesh has been uh, subdued, when it's been ashamed right. or troubled, right. um, that we could rejoice in that. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I think the key point here too, to be careful, because again, we can always rush into the one of the two ditches is we assume that in, unless we are suffering, we're not on the right path. Mm. And we have to be careful because this is not self-chosen suffering. This is vocation language, which means those crosses that you suffer are laid on you by God. So for you and I, it's to be married and have children and to be pastors. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you and I will both argue, those are primarily out of our control. How many kids we have, whether we have kids or not, whether we get married or not, whether we're pastors or not, those are pretty much out of our control. Where we serve at, Mm -hmm. all these things. Right. When we take suffering upon ourselves, as I do regularly Mm -hmm. in in my training, it's, yeah, as we say, pain is temporary and glory is forever. That when you take on suffering, self-chosen suffering, it is to glorify yourself. Yeah. And you could become the same kind of smug, self-righteous, hundred percent, because it is the hero, you're acting out the hero's narrative in your own life, in your context, mm-hmm. and in whether it's great or small, you are, you are, you are entering into something. Again, it's selfish, and it may be for the betterment of your wife and your children and your congregation and your neighbors, because you may be humbled in that situation and you may be a better man in this case. But underlying all that is this subtext: I am the hero of my own movie. I'm John Wick (laughs) versus when God lays suffering on you, as Luther points out in the Magnificat and in other places, it's not usually the kind of cross that you or I would say, oh, thanks. This is awesome. I love this cross. Like I said, when my son, when I'm told my son will die in utero, my first son, my first child, I'm told he's going to die. Who in their right mind is going to say, well, this is good. God has sent me the right kind of suffering. Right. No, of course In the not. same way, they're not going to choose it, right? No, no. So, so that's the problem with self-appointed suffering. Um, right. I mean, you can you can discipline the flesh all you like, right? Right. I, I mean, whether that's exercise, fasting, diet, and outward. fasting, yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. You you can do that, and you should do that probably for you know for various reasons, mm-hmm. um, but not for righteousness. And it's not it's not going to bring you into a right relationship with God, right? right. It's not going to restore right. that, um, and and it's actually not going to kill the old Adam. <laughs> No, it actually, actually, that's an excellent point. What it does is it actually feeds my old Adam <laughs> and strengthens him, right? Right, yeah. I'm going to be, I'm Beowulf in this story. <laughs> I'm the hero of this narrative. And therefore, I'm going to continue to enter into experiences and subject myself to these types of sufferings so long as the reward, the payoff is I grow in my own esteem and in the esteem of others. Hmm. It's a heroic narrative. 
No one wants to be the villain of the narrative unless he's a psychopath, which is why even anti-heroes like the Punisher hmm. or sure. Loki or name your hero, name your Greek myth. That's why we say, well, they're anti-hero. No, they're villains who just seem to share the same objective as we do at the moment. <laughs> And but there's, they're still villains. And there's there's glimpses of, you know, virtue or righteousness. Right. They have to be somehow redeemable. We have mm. to explain in some way that they are not good intentions. <laughs> yeah, right. That we can at least relate to them on a certain level. Well, you're not born evil. You just became evil. That's a very 21st century or 20th century <laughs> postmodern take too, right? Yeah. There's no such thing as good and evil. We all, we have to explain the motives of, of good and evil versus here to kind of bring this to a conclusion because we're going a little long today. There is no good and evil. There's just God. Mm. And there's you, the sinner. And God is good and you are not. And think about think about your deathbed, right? Right. Uh, will everything in your life be brought to shame <laughs> in yeah, that right. moment? Uh, yeah. Uh, God yeah. willing, the only thing you say, you know, you know, how do we sing it in the hymn? You know, hold out thy cross before my closing. Right. That that's well, it. As our beloved Dr. Nagel says at the funeral, there should only be one thing printed on the back of that funeral card. This one is baptized. Everything else is chaff. Mm. Mm. Because at the last day, at the feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast that you started off with, there's only one way to gain entrance. And that is, are you baptized? Is the name of Christ on your forehead? Yeah. Yes. What else can well, you take you with you? And... Right. <laughs> exactly. That's, that is the one thing that no one will try and beg, borrow, or bribe away from you, which is your death. And yet, as Luther points out, that is actually the door to eternal life mm -hmm. yeah. for the baptized. Mm. So for the baptized, Psalm 6 is good news because it's about the death of the old Adam. Mm. But for those who aren't baptized, this is just a horror movie. Yeah, pretty terrible. It is. So for those of you baptized, <laughs> rejoice in Psalm 6. And for those of you who aren't, uh, come see me. I'll baptize you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what? Right. Oh, but you need like eight weeks of instruction first. Well, we can go through Psalm 6 for eight weeks after I baptize you. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, more like, I'm more like Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. So what I, does this mean? It means you're supposed to be baptized right now. Except, well, what's to stop us? <laughs> yeah, but that's not Philip. Philip is the one who has to be convinced. The pastor has to get convinced to baptize the right? eunuch. Right. <laughs> there we go. See, I did learn from history. I learned one thing from history. <laughs> there uh, you go. Uh, beautiful. So, so that is the conclusion of this. Uh, wondrous glimpse into the lectures of Martin Luther and the penitential Psalms. Come back next week. We will dive into yet another penitential Psalm. Let's go for 143. All right. Mark, and dive into that. Marked. Um, there, thank you. Uh -huh. Otherwise, again, as always, we truly appreciate everything that you do to support this podcast. If there is anything that you would like us to read on the As Lutheran As It Gets podcast, shoot us an email and, and make some suggestions. We'd love to hear back from you. If it's not obvious, and, something Lutheran. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we should do an entire series of tongue-in-cheek podcasts. <laughs> Not as Lutheran as it gets. Right. Read John Bunyan. There we go. We can read Pilgrim's Progress. Oops. There we go. Again. Right. But uh, as always, we truly do love all of you for what you do for us. Go check out everything at the Higher Things website, and uh, we will uh, probably see you at conference in the summer. Not soon. All right. Peace. <laughs>